Blog Talk Radio. at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, with co-host Patricia Glover-Howard in the chat room. Well, I'm happy to welcome the callers and chatters to research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. If you have logged in as a guest and you wish to participate in the chat, please sign in through your Blog Talk Radio or Facebook. Well, tonight's show will focus on Left Behind, Peonage, and Involuntary Servitude with Antoinette Harrell. Antoinette Harrell, a peonage detective, has spent countless hours in the National Archives in Washington, D.C., conducting peonage research in Class 50 peonage litigation case files from 1907 to 1973. The Class 50 litigation case files were created or accumulated by the Civil Rights Division in carrying out the Department of Justice's responsibilities and matters arriving under statutes implementing the 13th Amendment to the Constitution. Many African Americans were physically forced or sometimes beaten to return to former employers to work off their debts. The files contain correspondence, memorandums, telegrams, newspaper clippings, transcripts of testimonies, FBI reports of investigations, and indictments. Antoinette has spent the last five years interviewing and documenting the history of Donald Jeffrey, who lived his entire life on the ball ground plantation. Vice Documentary is producing a 30-minute documentary on her research. Her peonage and involuntary servitude research has been featured in People magazine, Nightline, ABC News, and many other national and international publications. So let me give a warm welcome back to Antoinette Harrell to research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, Antoinette. Good evening, Bernice. I would like to thank you and Patricia for having me as a guest on the show tonight. Well, I am truly looking forward to you sharing information with us on the ball ground plantation. So let's start at your beginning. How did you find the ball ground plantation? I was um, a woman named Adrian Brown called me and she said, Antoinette, I know someone that's still living on a plantation. Actually, they never left. I I wasn't surprised, but I was happy that she told me where the plantation was located at. And, of course, Bernice, I had to make that trip. Okay, I know you had to make that trip. So, first of all, tell us, where is it located? 
Ball Ground Plantation is located in Warren County, Mississippi. I think it's right next door to the county of Yazoo. Well, Warren County, uh, Mississippi, is where the city of Vicksburg sits in Warren County. And there's an area called Redwood um, Ball Ground. Of course, let me tell you, Ball Ground got its name from the Indians that lived in the area, and they played ball on that particular land. And so I made my trip to Warren County, and I just couldn't believe what I saw. Okay, so Uh, what did you see? I saw people uh, that had never left the plantation, lived there, worked there all their lives. Uh, I had an opportunity to meet some of them. And when I first, what really got my attention was the jail holding cell that was on the property. But, of course, there was uh, several elderly people that were still living there, and there was a lot of the cabin homes or homes, should I say, uh, that was still there. Maybe about eight homes at that time when I first started going to um, ball ground. And so what did these homes look like? Well, Bernice, they really wasn't like what you would um, on a plantation. It was a little uh, more modern type of homes. And so if a person was to pass the place and didn't know that it was a plantation, they probably would not have assumed that those homes was um you know, sharecroppers' homes or plantation homes. But mm-hmm. not very far from there was another um, subdivision, and I want to say subdivision. This subdivision was a plantation with brick houses. So mm-hmm. when you pass this one particular plantation and you look to the right uh, from the area, from where the direction I was coming from, you would not have at least thought of assume that that was a plantation. So there was another plantation, not very far from there, but the homes was nowhere. You would not have thought that that, that those homes was um, a plantation home. But the homes mm-hmm. was, um, you know, sort of modern, but not, you can see homes that was probably built uh, somewhere in 40s, 30s, Somewhere like that. Um, oh, so they really okay. Didn't have that that cabin feeling to it. Right. So some of the original original homes on that plantation were no longer there. Some of the original homes was no longer there, and I guess they just mm-hmm. upgraded those homes uh, to be a little bit more thirties, forties, somewhat. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't like the cabins that most of us would assume that has visit plantations. Right, right. Now, when you talk about the plantation in acreage, how how vast amount of land surrounds the plantation or is the, the plantation? plantation sit, yeah, it sits on 4,000 acres. 4,000 acres right off the Yazoo River. The Yazoo River is not very far from there, so sometimes the land... Uh, during the rainy season can be overtaken, uh, but it sits on 4,000 acres. And with those 4,000 acres, what do they do on that land? Well, now they are raising soybeans. Soybeans, uh, it used to be cotton, but it's no longer cotton. So it's more soybeans that they raise now. So when you went to this plantation, did you have a chance to interview anyone? Oh, yeah, there was a lady, Miss um, Jeffrey, Miss Earl May Jeffrey. Bless her heart, she passed away, I think it's two years now. I had the opportunity to uh, interview a woman named Miss Lily, who has passed along as well. And I also interviewed... Uh, Miss Earl May Jeffers' youngest son, Donald. So those were the main two people that 
my research focused upon because they was the ones that was really sharing a lot of information with me. And I did interview the plantation owner's son who now runs the plantation. Okay, and so when you say the plantation owner's son, is this uh, centuries of ownership or they recently purchased this plantation? Just kind of give us a little bit more background. Yeah, they purchased a plantation, um, Carson said to me, in the 30s, his father, uh, grandfather purchased a plantation, or one of the family members, should I say, Um so the plantation, some of the the older people in Donald's family had been on that plantation before the Simmerall family purchased the plantation. So Carson, being the youngest son of his father, he inherited the plantation from his dad. Okay, gotcha. Mm-hmm. Now, during your many talks with Donald and his other relatives, give us a, a picture, kind of paint a picture for us of what they told you about life on the plantation. Well, first of all, let's talk about what they shared with us about family and how everybody would come together on a Sunday and you know, have a great time on the plantation. But it was also mentioned, too, about the hardship. You know, it was hard work. When you look at a place that was 4,000 acres, and if you had 100 people to work that plantation, that's still a lot of acres. Mm -hmm. So I was very sensitive to what Donald would share with me because he still lived there. I mean, if I can paint that picture, he still lived there. And um, I had to be very sensitive to that. And the information that he shared with me, as well as his mother shared with me, uh, because, once again, they still lived there. And so, so they were guarded in what they said to you about life on, on that plantation? Is that what you're saying? Yes, yes. They shared some things with me, but they were still very guarded in some of the information that they did share. And simply mm-hmm. because they still live there. You know, but in between that, I would hear something like, Everything wasn't as it was cracked up to be. Life wasn't always easy on a plantation. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, the, uh, Donald and Carson developed this relationship that they said they grew up together. So Donald's mother basically raised, uh, I think, the younger two sons, of uh, the Simmerall family. Mm-hmm. And so Donald and, and you, you know, when we think about life on a plantation, every every story can be totally different. Every experience can be totally different. I wanted to hear from Donald, and I watched Donald and Carson interact with each other so mm-hmm. much that they really talked about a brotherhood that the two of them share. They eat together. They drink their beer together. Um, Donald goes up to the big house where Carson live, and they hang out together. So I really need to, I want to be very cautious on how I approach that situation. Mm -hmm. Donald Mm -hmm. still lives in that area. Right, right. And it, it it is important for him to maintain that relationship because he is still living in that area. Well, exactly. without us going into great detail about Donald, let's kind of go back to 
uh, some other things that you were able to find uh, on the plantation. For example, were there pictures and documents that you discovered when you went to the plantation? Yeah, very good question. Um, I spent four years going back and forth to the plantation and spending some time with Carson in his home as well. And he invited me to uh, look in the family trunk. And that was the very first time that Donald had uh, looked inside of that trunk. And when Carson allowed me to go in there, I saw photographs. I saw uh, record books of how much cotton was picked, who uh, was on a plantation, um, how many pounds that person picked. Um, there was a lot of photographs. And, that, and and it was good that whomever took the photographs took a lot of photographs of the families who was living on that plantation. And that was very helpful, too. So I got to see it from uh, the pictures I saw it looked like they could have been in the 50s, late, you know, mid-40s, 50s, 60s, um, and looked like the early 70s could have been some of the photographs that I saw that was black and white photographs of some of the different families, and um, it became a hunting camp as well. And so I got to see some of the African-American men with the hound dogs and different things that they was doing on a plantation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Very interesting. So all of these photos were in a trunk? But yeah, that was in, in uh, Carson's um, family's trunk. And I was happy that he let me look inside that trunk. I, re- I, I was really grateful that he allowed me to scan uh, a lot of the documents that was in there, I found uh, cotton insurance policies. Um, just it was just a lot of different things inside of the trunk. Confederate money was in a trunk. Uh, I saw some of the Confederate dollars. So it was a lot that Donald and I and Carson we was looking at it together, and it was really educational for me to look at Donald and Carson interact together and Mm -hmm. for Carson to open up the album and let Donald look inside of that trunk. So there's a question that's coming out of the chat. How how were you able to build up trust enough to have Donald share information with you and also to have Carson share information that he shared with you, including opening up the trunk and showing you the documents. Well, I am so happy that that, whoever asked that question asked that question because uh, after visiting, the very I remember the first time I visited with Donald, Donald called up and asked Carson if I could come up and Carson said, yeah. You know, uh, she's welcome to come. And so we sit down on the back of the porch and had a, I had a glass of cold tea and Donald and Carson was drinking that beer. And we just had a general conversation. I introduced myself and basically told him what I was doing. And at that point, as we engaged in a conversation, there was times that I would just be quiet and listen to Donald and Carson interact with each other and the things that they said that they do in the evening time, like they might put something on the grill and they'll cook out and uh, Donald would use Carson's truck to go to the store, whatever whatever it was that needed to be done. And I had to really let both men know that I didn't want to make their story anything that it wasn't. If there mm-hmm. was a relationship there, I wanted to respect that relationship. I wanted to respect mm-hmm. the relationship that those two people had between each other. And it was very 
very important for me not to cross those boundaries because other than that, I would have been hurting their relationship and definitely not, you know, I didn't want to set up a distrusting relationship with either with either one of those people. Mm-hmm. But I did mm-hmm. meet Carson's girlfriend whose grandfather was the overseer. So then I started to talk with her as well. So oh, that's upon one of my visits, yeah, upon one of my visits because I had many visits there, and Donald asked Carson it would be okay if he would take me and on a tour in a place, and Carson said yes. Yeah. So I went to the smokehouse, I went to the hen house, I went to the old jail that was on the property, I went to the barn, I went across the the highway. Um, on one of those ATVs, and they just drove me around and just gave me just a tour of the plantation. And that was with Carson's permission to do so. Now, you mentioned you went to the jail. What what was I mean, the jail on the plantation? Tell us about this jail and who was put you know, in this jail. Okay. Okay. Uh, Carson's granddad had the jail built on the property, and he would go in town and get some of the prisoners or people that was in jail and place them on his property to work off a debt with the jail, I mean, with the with the um, courts. And in return, they would work on his property until their time expired for them to be released out of prison. And uh, so they would go into Yazoo, get these men, bail them out, and they would work off their debt on that plantation. But it just wasn't um, the men. I remember Donald's mother, Miss Earl May, saying to me that she remember women being there as well. And she said she remember one woman would cry all the time. You know, she would just cry. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was allowed to go into that space. And what I was looking for when I was in there, if anybody had left their name um, engraved in the brick wall, you know, that would have said when they was there. The only thing I found was 1965. That's all I found. But there were other um, books and photographs and documents an old antique furniture that was being stored in the place um, now. Now, when the the last time I went, which was in November, I'm noticing each time I go, there's been a change in the plantation. More houses are being torn down or demolished. Uh, the bell, and that bell to me, uh, when hearing it from Donald's mother, uh, said that they would ring the bell for 12 o'clock for the men uh, to come in for lunch or for dinner. Uh, and she, just hearing her ring that bell and to have her to tell me a story. So the story was really told in two different times, Donald's time and his mother's time. Mm-hmm. And in his mother's time, what's what's that time frame? Well, his mother's time frame was, once again, the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. And she was, she was a school teacher. And I remember her saying to me how she would take the boat and she would go and she would teach. Um, but she had to get on the boat to go there. And she graduated from high school, but she became one of the teachers. Now, on this plantation, there was more liberties for them, for the people that lived on the plantation, uh, versus other places that you will find. Mm-hmm. You just didn't hear, no one talked about uh, beatings, no one talked about lynchings, no one talked about having to run away. No one talked about that, and but it's mm-hmm. and Donald. It's interesting um, though that this plantation 
actually had a relationship with the, uh, I would call it the prison system for that matter, for them to have a jail and to have prisoners actually assigned to that plantation to work off their debt. That, that's an interesting concept, but it's, and that that jail is still there. Yeah, convict leasing was very common um, in the rural communities where men would be charged with, you know, bogus or trumped-up charges uh, for vagrant laws, all sort of just anything you can find, and they would be placed in these type of uh, this convict leasing just to have the free labor, pretty much like what you see now in the prisons, basically Mm -hmm. what Michelle Alexandra speaks about in her book, The New Jim Crow. Right. You are so right. Well, Antoinette, we're going to just take a quick break, and when we come back, I want you to tell us a little bit more about your peonage research and how that ties into what you uh, we're seeing at the ball ground plantation. So we're just going to take a quick break. Come right back. Sure. Welcome back to Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is Bernice Bennett with co-host Patricia Glover-Howard, and you can join us every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time where we will have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy and history questions. Remember, all of our guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. All of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and they can be downloaded from Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, TuneIn.com, and Stitcher.com. Well, you have been listening to Antoinette Harrell discussing Left Behind, Peonage and Involuntary Servitude. Now, Antoinette, when I first started the show, I did mention that you had done a great deal of research in Washington, D.C. as the peonage detective. Did you find any incidents or evidence of peonage at Ball Ground Plantation? No, I did not. Um, like I said earlier, I I found many cases of pinnage in Yazoo, but I didn't find any complaints from the NAACP, the FBI reports, or uh, the Attorney General where there was any complaints from anyone coming from Ball Ground Plantation. But just recently, and and I, and I. Because of the work, I'm learning of more plantations and other uh, cases. Donald is one of the people that will be featured in the documentary. There's a man named Arthur Walls. Him, him, him and his family was also held as slaves in uh, Gillsburg, Mississippi. Now, their case was totally different. There was a lot of beatings. There was lynchings. There was still away through the night, and to hear Arthur tell his story is still bone chilling to me, because mm-hmm. the fright in his eyes and 
his voice and also can name the people that the Night Riders, he was able to name them. He talked about the man that was lynched uh, because of his wife. Um, they would come to the cabin and they would want to take uh, this woman and have intercourse with her. And one day she just refused to go. And so they went to the to the house and shot her in the kitchen in her stomach. And that was Arthur's aunt. And the same uh, family, Arthur saw well, his father, and I had an opportunity to meet his dad, who was 115 years old when he died. And I had the opportunity to sit with him throughout the years and record his testimony, his story, and he talked about how his uncle Jerry had to dig his own grave and they shot him in the grave and uh in inside of that grave. But so all of the cases somewhat can differ. It can be different, mm-hmm. totally different uh than others. So and and they this family, the Wall family had to steal away. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. it wasn't an easy life for for them. Now, just recently, I've been working with the Whitney Plantation, which most people have heard about Whitney uh, Plantation. Um, I learned just this past Tuesday that they have found records that indicate that people was held to 1975. Let me repeat wow. that. Not hearing you. 65, 1975, they bought records on the TV show. They allowed me to go in when they found these records, look at these records, and to see these records, that uh, it was medical records, it was records from the commissary store, it was also records where they was writing these, the people who owned the plantation was writing the governor of Louisiana at that particular time saying, look, fire these men. I need them to come back to this plantation to work. And one man, oh, my God, I don't want to call his first name because he still could be living, but his last name was Johnson. And he was on, he wanted to leave Whitney Plantation and go and work on another plantation. But he had to get a written permission to go and get his things off the plantation. So what the new plantation, I think it was called Green's Plantation, uh, was writing Whitney Plantation and said, well, we know that he owed $25, and we will make sure he pay those $25. But some of these letters was just really heartbreaking to see that in 1965, 1968, up until 1975, people was was bound to these plantations and could not leave. That's really difficult to hear. Now, did you find any evidence of that on ball ground plantations? No, I didn't find any evidence that no one um, this when you are dependent upon a system, be it for shelter or what little money you could be making, it's a different type of bondage. It's a very thin line to what makes a person behold to this situation. It make it brings to mind a woman that's married to an abuser. She has three kids and she's dependent upon him to financially just put a roof over their head, a food in the children's mouth. So she will she can't she she look at how she's She's confined to that relationship out of necessity. And that's the best way mm-hmm. to explain some of these situations. Mhm, mhm. 
But when you have spent time going back and forth to ball ground plantation, there's something that you were looking for or trying to paint a picture of. So tell us, I mean, what compelled you to keep going back to this plantation? Because you mentioned you've been going back and forth for over five years. Yeah, I. Uh, whenever I'm on plantations like that, I must always keep an open mind because I don't know what it is. I have to go back and over and over and over again to see what was it that kept families like the Jeffrey family on this plantation for as long as they had been there. But being mm-hmm. very cautious on every plantation, there are some things I may never say when I come across situations like that because I can leave, but the families that's there, I don't want anything to happen to them. Mm-hmm. I don't want anything to happen to no family that I know that still live on those plantations. So what I do, instead of me painting the picture, I I sit back and allow the individuals to paint the picture for me. In the in the, at the same time, I'm gathering what documentation in records if they open up the records to let me see. And when they do that, then I can draw my own conclusion. But yet I'm still very cautious because I have developed a trusting relationship with families like that. And I don't want to put them in harm's way. So no amount of media coverage can make me put someone's life in harm's way if someone feel like a secret is about to get out. Uh, I'm, I'm understanding what you're saying that you you are cautious about what you what you're gathering and what you're sharing publicly. But when you have a crew coming in, I mean this this documentary crew coming in, they're documenting something, a story that they right. feel a lot of people need to hear about. So what we're talking about or what I'm hearing, though, is that you have generations of individuals that are still living on the land that their maybe ancestors lived on. What's keeping them there as opposed to leaving? Because you're calling it left behind. What's keeping them at that plantation? Like I said, the need. If this person will loan you $30 or give you $30 in today's time and you don't have anywhere else that you can get that or you have Mm -hmm. that place to stay or you have that place to stay, but keep in mind that you are at that person's beck and call at all times. So, once again, when Vice went in, Vice had an opportunity to interview Donald, and they had an opportunity to interview Carson. I was there when they interviewed Donald. I wasn't there when they interviewed Carson. And I wasn't there for reasons that was conflicting to me being there. Mm-hmm. That basically So it sounds made, like they, they have no choice. I mean, you're saying, look, I need, I need a place to stay. I need shelter. I need a little job. Uh, and sometimes I do need extra money. And I, mm-hmm. I can't go to the bank. But at least I can right. go to the plantation owner, and the plantation owner will loan me this money. Now, mm-hmm. the only way that I'm going to pay this money back is that I have to continue to work for them. It's 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 almost like that whole sharecropping system. 
You summed it where, up. Where they had the store on the land, and you would go in and you would get your little stuff on credit, but it would come out of your wages. I mean, is, is, am I painting this the way you're, you're, painting, you're telling the story? You're painting, you're painting the picture because that's exactly the way it is. In my traveling through the Mississippi Delta, there's four plantations that I know of, four that I visit. One plantation, I haven't been accepted that very well. But I'll still go by and say, hello, how you doing? Just to talk. But the people get very frightened when they see me. That's their home. If we get put out of this place, where are we going to go? Mm-hmm. Where are we going to go? And mind you, a lot of these places are in very isolated, remote areas. Very isolated. It. I didn't find these plantations just by driving down the highway. It was always a conversation with someone. I remember when I stopped at a store, and the white lady that was behind the counter, she said, I want you to sit back and I want you to observe something. She said, I want you to observe how I can talk to the black men as long as no white man is in this store. When you see a black man in the store with a white man in the store at the same time, I can't even hand him his money. I have to put it on the counter. And I just stopped and observed that. And everything she said took place. And then the cook that was in the kitchen, she called me to the window, and she said, there's a plantation six miles up the road. People still work on that plantation. And she gave me directions on how to get there, and I went there. I can still, this is the one I'm talking about with attention. Still a lot of tension on that place. Mm-hmm. And then there's another plantation right across the dirt road. So if you ever saw the movie The Heat of the Night, mm-hmm. and you ever see that little car going down that little dirt road, and the smoke yes. is just, that's how these places are. Now, just you like just that. mentioned this this incident, and I have a question. How long ago did you observe this? Was it, to, you know, recent or a long time that ago? That was two summers ago. Two summers two ago. Summers okay, ago. yeah, that's so. Mm-hmm. And, Antoinette, we're uh, being asked to have you name some of the plantations you visited again. Let me just say ball ground, um, the other ones, because of the investigation right now, I can't name two of them. And and let me say the reason why. What I have learned that people will go back as if they are visiting the zoo, taking oh. pictures. Mm-hmm. That's why I have to be very cautious. It's nothing... I really wish I could reveal those other two, which all I can say, they're in Tallahassee County, Mississippi, mm-hmm. the the county where Emmett Till was murdered at, which is a still hard place. And what took me there, because I was looking for cases in Glendora, Mississippi, and Swans Lake, Mississippi, and it took me a little while to find those other two plantations, but I did find them. Mm-hmm. And I just, um, I went there 
I went to that plantation November when Vice was here. Vice was with me when I went back to those two plantations, but they also sensed that the people was very reluctant to talk. And when we when I find that I respect that because I have I have too many documents in my collection where people was murdered because of talking. And with this with all the racism and all the hatred that's going on right now, it's like the hands of time has turned around again. It's not the safest time for them to talk about that and still live where they are. But I can say one thing. I, when I went there in November, the commissary store was torn. They had demolished that. So Family Tree Girl would like to know, how do you process all of this information and not not be angry? Well, when I first started, uh, yes, I was angry. Yes, there was a lot of crying. There was a lot of emotions that was involved. And there's still crying when I listen to people um, tell me that story. But I found that I had to channel that anger, that anger into helping to tell that story. And I'm very grateful for Justin Farmer, that, uh, that he's a journalist for National Geographic. He gave me his word because for years and years I had tried to pitch these stories to people, but nobody would touch it. No black journalist would touch it. None. So now my anger, I channel that through education, to talking about it, writing mm-hmm. about it. Talking to you. I've talked to you many times about this. Oh, yes. You, know. you, you definitely have, yes. Yeah. I called you, Bernice. The last time <laughs> I called you was in November when you found through your DNA that you are related to the Jeffrey family. Yes. You and I both screamed. Mhm. Unbelievable. We it was we could we could not believe that. Could not believe it. That's right. And I I wonder how many people even are aware of this. I mean, I was not aware of Ball Ground Plantation. And you know, you mentioning that there are other plantations and I know you've you've done a lot of advocacy work and you've helped a lot of people in the Delta. Uh but Unless we have people out there really talking about it, it's like invisible people, invisible lives. Mm-hmm. And so what, and if if there's anything that we could do, the listeners, I mean, we're here, we're doing our genealogical research, you're looking and digging even deeper, because uh, you said we do safe genealogy. Safe genealogy is where you don't find all of the hardship and and the the stuff that really might bring you to tears. Uh, But what can we do? How can we learn more? I think that if you can really book a show every six months to have the people come on, not just me, but if there's anybody willing to talk about it, you know, especially after Vice uh, aired a documentary, I have invited some of the people uh, to open up to radio shows and other television shows, that's going to be a lot that's going to come out of this. A lot Mm -hmm. will come from this. You know, we're looking at uh, a movie coming out of this. There's going to be other documentaries because there's so many different cases. I mean, there's the chain gangs, there's the women in chain gangs, there was those of reform school. Uh, We had a very uh, good victory. The state apologized. They took they own they took ownership for what they did, and now the men are going to be compensated uh, for what happened to them. That was finished right then. Those are reform schools, and it mm-hmm. just, you know you just beat that drum. You just keep beating that drum until somebody hear you. Somebody say, Antoinette, I'm going to keep I'm going to keep doing this. Justin, um, he went and put this before National Geographic. It was some people said, "Oh, it's a little bit too dark." What do you mean it's too dark? It's, it 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 actually took place. 
look, there's Justin saying from that, don't look. I'm gonna I'm gonna tell, help you tell this story. So when I have journalists, photojournalists, radio personalities like yourself, television personalities, I just take every angle I can so we raise the awareness that the slavery, slavery, there was a new form of slavery, and we should be looking at new records, even in our genealogy research. There's extensions of records that we should be looking at. And as you mentioned, I mean, even earlier, mentioning the, the, just looking at the Department of Justice records, I mean, how many people have even taken time to go to archives too and to look at the litigation case files that were created by the Civil Rights Division? That's right. There's people named. uh, There is dates. There's places when people say, I can't find my ancestors. I know that they was here. I can't find them anywhere. Well, sometimes mm-hmm. you have to look in the civil rights records and look in the Department of Justice files, look in the NAACP files, look in the Attorney, the Attorney General files, uh, FBI files, and you will find that there is lots of information there. You know, and it was Record Group sixty, and and with that, I mean. Every chance I get. I mean, when I go to the National Archives, I'm very seldom about looking for anything for myself. I'm looking to help. It's, let me just say this. A lot of the people that talk to me, every one of them have said to me, who's going to believe me? Why would I want to tell anybody this? Nobody's going to believe me. And I know that they are not making that up. Because look at the problems I have had trying to tell people that slavery was not abolished for hundreds of thousands of people. And I must put this in. I found pinnage cases in 16 states and 27 counties in Mississippi. Pinnage cases was coming in. And so when we look at those Freeman B-roll records, that was the beginning of the new form of slavery for everyone that possibly could have made their ex not knowing how to read, not knowing how to write, but there's a new form of slavery. This time, you're going to sign up for it. You're going to make your ex. Mm Mm-hmm. Children as young as five years old making their ex. I don't believe they made their ex. And, you know, Bernice, one of the things that I want to work on uh, starting in the springtime is turn my attention to the thousands of children that was left in the system. See, let me tell you, the, the great migration from the south to the north, people ran away and left their children on these plantations. And for the elderly people who could not leave to go up to go up north, well, the young parents left the children back with the grandmothers. And so in some cases, you found children in a plantation, 13, 14 children in one house. It was easy to conform children to this new form of slavery. And it was so brutal sometimes that the parent, the mother, the fathers actually ran off and left their children. Some tried to return, but they was beat just trying to go back and get their children. Because mm-hmm. if you think about it, you have a child on that's five on this plantation, five years old. That child is going to grow up to be an adult on this plantation. They're not going to try to run away like, like grown folks would. It's easier to get those little hands. If you got ten little hands, they're going to do what you say. All you have to do is whip one of them, make an example out of one, you got the whole household now. You have, you're right. You have the whole household. And you have a household of people that perhaps 
see no other choices but to to stay with the familiar right. unless they have an opportunity to get away, exactly. to pursue education somewhere else. Mm-hmm or to join family members or get into the military or go to school or what have you. Yeah. And so, um, yes, I've had my time of sadness with it, um, but I really wanted to do what I can to continue to raise awareness about the new form of slavery. Um, And I do want to add that I found other nationality of people that was held in this form of slavery, uh, Choctaw Indians, Polish, Hungarians, Italians. The Italians was basically, a lot of them was in Florida. Uh, Mary Quackenbosch was working in that area. Um, so when you read letters from Thurgood Marsha, uh, James uh, Weldon Johnson, I have a lot of records from people uh, that I scan from people like that. So what I'm doing at this time, I think uh, I spent probably 10 years just creating a database, and I'm getting ready mm-hmm. to really look at turning all the records over now to the Amistad. Uh, Walter and I scan, oh, my God, Bernice, we probably scanned about 10,000 records when I, when we was there. We really wasn't reading too many of them, until mm-hmm. we were finished, because I didn't have time to read all those records there. But what I did, I put them in categories like the FBI reports, the NAACP reports. So I broke them down in categories, and now I'm ready to process them. And hopefully uh, by the uh, fall, the beginning of fall of this year, I will be ready to turn it over to the Amistad. Mm-hmm. Which again is a is a wonderful way of maintaining your documentation at the ambassade, but it does open up the door for others who go to New Orleans and can read those records. So thank you so much for making that uh, resource available to to all of us. Well, Antoinette, yes, we know that there's a documentary coming out, so uh, I don't know if you have specific information, but can you tell us uh, when you think we may be able to see this documentary and uh, who's producing it again? Yes, Vice is producing it, and I was told uh, on yesterday that the producer uh, wants to look at the documentary airing on all their outlets, TV Land, I'm, I'm, I'm not TV Land, Vice Land, Vice.com is set for February the 15th. Um, they are going to do something with for Black History at the end of the month. And as soon as the documentary airs, uh, I will be invited to the National Explorers Club in New York uh, to lecture on uh, this type of exploring research. And so with that, uh, we're just waiting. And I have had some major producers, movie producers, uh, show some interest in the story. So I've been very busy. Uh, like I said, I had to really put it all in um, in a format so that the treatment can be written for the movie. And so that's the next angle because I feel that if I can get it to the bigger screen, then it will raise a larger awareness of uh, the new form of slavery. Mm-hmm. And, and I am familiar you, with Doug Blackman's work. Well, are you? I was going to ask you about that, but can you tell us about any other PNH detectives, or are you kind of the the main person? Well, I haven't. Uh, Doug Blackman is the only person that I have met along the way of this research. Uh, There was Pete Daniels was the first book that I wrote. There's several books. Um, One of the books that I wrote, uh, and my book basically is a lot of the the documents that I scanned from the from 
uh, the National Archives is in that book because people always say, I don't believe this. So the book itself has many documents in it, and Doug Blackman's book, Slavery by Another Name in his documentary, um, it shined a light, but once people get past, oh, I didn't know, that's where it stands, but there's nothing else. So I think that when we're looking in our own family history, we need to be looking for penance. We need to look and see if there was anyone caught up in that system of sharecropping. And sharecropping was just a, a nicer word for it, but actually the bondage behind that was much deeper than that. You know, couldn't get away, couldn't get away. Uh, and so you will hear the stories um, from other people. You're going to hear the relationship between Donald and Carson, but then Arthur is going to show you the ugly side of it as well. So I don't know of any other person that is doing the work. And, and I must say, Bernice, you know, uh, it's been 20 years for me now with this. And so I'm hoping that this summer um, I can meet more interns now and college students that will say, okay, you know, we'll work with you so I can basically teach them what I know and get ready for my retirement of, going in the field and doing the work and do more lectures about the work and, and uh, more teaching to younger people who will be coming behind me. Uh, that's one thing that I want to do to make sure that we continue to to learn all we can because then with genealogy, we're constantly turning over new stones to, to learn more information. And pinage, involuntary servitude, is a word, two words that we should not forget because it's the and new And you are so research. right. You are right. We should not forget. And so, Antoinette, I want to thank you so much for coming on tonight and sharing your research on left behind, peonage, and involuntary servitude with us. And for those of you who don't know a lot about this, I would encourage you to get Antoinette's book and to follow Antoinette. Antoinette is on Facebook. And Antoinette, where else can they follow you? They can follow me at www.penisdetective.com because I'm posting some of the letters on my website, that's, that's once again, www.penagedetective.com. Okay. And so everyone, they can find the blog. Go ahead. Uh, they can find the blogs and all the other information on that site. Great. So, everyone, I want you to remember, your ancestors left footprints. And you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, and research at the National Archives and beyond. You can continue this discussion on the research at the National Archives and beyond and the Afrogenius Facebook pages as well as Antoinette Harrell's Facebook page. And also remember to listen to the African Roots podcast with Angela Walton Raji and also watch for the Black Progen Live with host Nika Sewell Smith. Thank you so much for joining research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. And also check out my services at BB's Genealogy Research and Educational Services, LLC. And my website is www.geniebroots.com. Well, I look forward to you joining us next week. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and co-host Patricia Glover Howard. Good night, everyone. Good night, Antoinette. Good night, and thank you, Patricia, for having me. Good night.